The scripture reading is from 1 Peter 1-12, through and this is from the New Living Translation. I'll give you a minute to find it. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the lands of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, the province of Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father chose you long ago, and the Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Jesus Christ and are cleansed by his blood. May you have more and more of God's special favor and wonderful peace. All honor to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for it is by his boundless mercy that God has given us privilege of being born again. Now we live with a wonderful expectation because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. For God has reserved a priceless inheritance for his children. It is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And God, in his mighty power, will protect you until you receive the salvation, because you are trusting him. It will be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is a wonderful joy ahead, even though it is necessary for you to endure many trials for a while. These trials are only to test your faith, to show that it is strong and pure. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. And your faith is far more precious to God than mere gold. So if your faith remains strong after being tried by fiery trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him, even though you have never seen him. And though you do not see him, you trust him. And even now, you are happy with the glorious and expressible joy. Your reward for trusting him will be the salvation for your souls. This salvation was something the prophets wanted to know more about. They prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. Even though they had many questions as to what it all could mean, they wondered what the Spirit of Christ within them were, was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They wondered when and to whom all this would happen. They were told these things would not happen during their lifetimes, but many years later, during yours, and now this good news has been announced by those who preached to you in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even angels are eagerly watching these things happen. This is the word of our Lord. Praise be to God. I'm often curious about some of the expressions we tend to use in daily conversations. You know, greetings and such. You've all heard them this morning, I'm sure. But I confess, given the current situation and the heaviness of heart that we all feel, I find it more difficult to open up with a typical hearty, good morning. I'm sure you feel it as well these days. Mornings are harder to describe as good. And yet, scripture reminds us that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How do we do that? It is our hope that over the next eight weeks, as we look more closely at this first letter from Peter, that we'll come to understand better what that actually means and why that can be true even in the most difficult of circumstances. So let me just say, I'm glad you're here with us this morning, worshiping with us, and to those online 
and those in person, welcome. My name is Gary Miles, and I am one of the elders here at Kishwaukee. As most of you know, Pastor Eric is on leave while he cares for his family. So for the near future, several elders along with Jordan will be sharing the privilege of filling the pulpit. I use that term privilege on purpose because it truly is a privilege to share God's word with you all. And I want to thank you for entrusting us with that. And I know I speak for the others who will be sharing this responsibility, that it's not something that we take lightly. Before we turn our attention to God's word, let's turn to him in prayer. Lord, you are holy, just, merciful, and worthy of our praise. Open our minds and our hearts this morning to your word. I pray that this would not be just a message for the moment, but a truth by which we are changed and live out to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To introduce this letter, I want to share something that was written by a 19th century German New Testament scholar. His name is Augustus Wiesinger. He wrote, Did we not know who wrote this letter, we should be forced to say, This is a rock-like man who writes thus, whose soul rests on a rock foundation, and who with his mighty testimony undertakes to fortify the souls of others against the pressure of the storms of suffering advancing upon them, and to establish them upon the true rock. I love that. I will return to that statement again at the end of this message because inherent in, in it is an encouraging reminder for all of us. The thing is, we don't seem to write like that anymore. Can't you sense in those words the power and assurance upon which this author, Peter, stakes out his claim? That is what we are going to discover in studying this letter. As we hear Peter share the power of Christ to a faithful collection of scattered Christians experience their own severe suffering and grief. This letter is the first of two letters Peter wrote to believers in the area of Asia Minor, what is basically modern Turkey. In verse 1, he identifies his readers as those strangers in the world scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Strangers is not only a political reality for these Christians who are scattered from their homelands, but it's also a spiritual reality. They, like us, are strangers. Aliens, he says later in chapter 2. But strangers in this world, citizens of God's kingdom. It is generally accepted that the dating of this book is roughly the early 60 time frame. This would be leading up to or at the beginning of Nero's persecution of Christians in Rome. This letter has been described by various commentators as a letter of suffering and persecution, suffering and glory, a letter of hope, a letter of pilgrimage, of courage and steadfastness. What we will learn as we work our way through this letter is that Peter gets to the heart of the matter of how professing Christians ought to live out their lives under that confession. Not only how, but why, and in particular under conditions that, quite frankly, might otherwise crush us. In today's scripture, he jumps into something that would be at the forefront of his readers' minds. They are experiencing suffering and trials. 
Now, he doesn't elaborate what they are. Of course, why would he? They know what's going on in their lives. But from the dating, it is most certainly some form of persecution and suffering for their faith. Before we turn to the text, however, and what it's teaching the readers then and us today, I need to pause here and offer a reminder for us all, and especially for me as we delve into this subject of suffering. That reminder, I think, is best captured in Proverbs 25.20. It says, Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on a wound, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Now, the word that's translated wound there is from the New Living Translation. The ESV and the NIV use the word soda. The King James Version uses the word niter. Niter is a compound that was prevalent in the region. It's similar, basically, sodium bicarbonate, what we more commonly refer to as baking soda. Now, I know you all know what happens when you pour vinegar on baking soda. It's the stuff of volcanoes and science experiments. I think that better reflects what the point is they're trying to make here in this proverb. When someone's under suffering and certain comments can be made, it can be very hurtful. Not just like a wound, not just a physical pain, but an emotional pain. And I think that roiling that happens with vinegar and soda reflects what could happen to people if approached incorrectly. There is a danger whenever we discuss the issue of suffering. So please do not hear in any of this message that we are to simply buck up and be joyful regardless of our circumstances. That is not at all how Scripture teaches us to approach suffering. And please hear this. It is certainly not how we are to approach others in the midst of suffering. Simply spouting theology to one suffering great hardship is not offering truth in love. As we will see, expressing grief, sorrow, doubt, and even anger are normal expressions of a healthy Christian faith in the face of suffering and expressions that you will find throughout Scripture. At the same time, we will see an element of joy that provides a reservoir of strength to help endure what suffering may come. That these opposing motions can exist simultaneously in intention in the heart of a believer is truly a beautiful paradox of our Christian faith, yet one in which we still wrestle. So with that background and understanding, let's take a look at the text. I did include a short outline in the bulletin of the main points of this text, and they break down like this. What we believe, number two, what that means, and then number three, why that matters. Okay? What we believe, what that means, and why that matters. Then I'd like to close with some practical thoughts on how we might respond in the face of various trials. After introducing himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, in effect, stating up front his credentials, Peter immediately, well, let's just say, jumps into the deep end of the pool. Right off the bat, he addresses a fundamental belief in the Christian faith. I wrestled a bit, I wrestled a lot, with preparing this message, and I realized the reason was is there was just so much content, 
content jammed into these first nine verses that I was trying to fit it all into some neat little package, but it just kept growing. That was especially true of these first two verses. I think we could spend weeks on these verses alone. The reason is Peter's captured maybe the whole of the gospel, the Bible really, into these two packed verses. Why start out with such a heavy idea? Well, remember, he's writing to encourage these Christians in their faith who are in the midst of grief from trials. Here's the point. How they, how we, respond to any life situation depends largely upon what, in fact, we believe about life. And no more so than when we are in the crucible of suffering does what we believe impact how we respond. Peter's whole aim here is to make sure his readers are reminded of what exactly they believe. He's grounding them on a sure foundation from which he can then build them up. Let's look at the text. Peter starts out with, to God's elect. Now, right there, that idea alone of God's elect will send theologians across the spectrum into an endless debate on the nature and interrelation of God's will and man's free will. As I said, that's a message for another time. Suffice it to say, our Reformed theology stands on the truth of God's elect, his chosen people. Now, for those who like extra credit homework, I've listed just a few scripture references in the outline that offer further support for this truth. Now, that's not to say that it's easy or fully comprehensible in our minds. It isn't, but it is true. And never forget this when reflecting on this topic of the elect. Scripture clearly tells us God desires for all to be saved. He sent his son just for that reason. Peter does not mince words in this regard. So, he continues. To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. I warned you. Take a deep breath and let's break this down. There's a lot in there. Peter reminds them that they are part of God's larger plan. God's elect, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. There's no accident they are part of this community. He goes on to invoke the full workings of the Trinity in this condensed statement. He says this occurs through the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all present as part of God's plan. In that is as true for Christians in first century Asia Minor as it is for us in 21st century America. Now, I realize there's a lot in that sentence, but I found it easier to wrap my mind around it by following the lead of Calvin, who slightly reorders the sentence to clarify the associations, stating it this way. Elected, according to the foreknowledge of God, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ through the sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, they were elected in order that they might obey the gospel. 
and be cleansed from the guilt of sin by the blood of Christ. All done through the sanctifying power of the Spirit. You see, it's not their obedience that made them the elect, but they were chosen that they might obey and guided in that obedience by the Holy Spirit. That is a core message of our faith. Why does this matter? Again, how we view life, what we believe, determines how we respond to life circumstances. And this is especially true when we are in the midst of suffering. I'm sure you're aware of the proliferation of student demonstrations and uprisings across college campuses over the past few years. I read an account of one college professor at a big-name university who had never in his career experienced this level of animosity and outright hatred and violent behavior, even over seemingly innocuous issues. He was at a loss to rationalize the behavior, so after one such demonstration that turned particularly violent, this professor took the occasion to ask one of his students, who was an upperclassman whom he respected and considered quite mature, He asked what was driving this behavior. The student's answer was as shallow as it was simplistic. They just want people to be happy. If that represents the foundation upon which someone, not just someone, but a lot of people apparently, rests their life's understanding, what on earth will they do when the real storms of life come raging over them? As they surely will. What anchors them in the midst of suffering? And more importantly, how will they respond if their fundamental understanding of life boils down to one objective, being happy? Now, it could be easy to write this off as young adults viewing life through the lens of idealistic eyes, and that may be part of it. But then, a few months ago, in the midst of the pandemic, my workplace began offering a college outreach class through Yale University, They often partner with various universities for courses and continuing education. This one caught my eye. It is advertised as their happiness class. Hmm, coincidence? In fact, I now see Yale offering it as a free online class as a result of the current crisis. Here's how the course description reads. Yale's most popular class ever ever teaches happiness, six steps to making you happy through the science of well-being. Did you catch that? Yale's most popular class ever. Yale's been an elite institution for a very long time. Most popular class ever tells me there's something much deeper going on here. What we believe at our core about life matters, and Peter wastes no time in reminding his readers what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. After laying this foundation, we then see Peter lay out what that means. First, putting this in perspective, Peter reminds his readers that all of this, everything, is through God's grace and mercy. Look at what he says, picking it up in the second part of verse 3. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed 
in the last time. Well, here we have another theologically packed statement, but look at what he's saying. First, it is only through God's mercy. Friends, there is nothing we can do on our own to earn salvation. It is a gift from God, period. Peter reminds us of this because it tends to be easier to accept God's mercy when we discuss election and salvation, things we like, and we are on that receiving them. But what about our everyday struggles that we all go through? Life is hard. We all at some point experience suffering and grief and trials. Everyone. The question is, how do we deal with it? It's easy to cry out, where is God's mercy in all this suffering? But Peter is reminding us it is exactly this mercy which undergirds everything in our faith, in our life, really. Peter identifies three elements of what that means. First, we are given a new birth. What is a new birth? It's quite literally, is new life. We are reborn, or as the expression goes, born again. Not just renewed, but we have a new nature. Not that our old nature is completely gone, it remains and something we struggle with, even war against. But this new life is changing us through the Holy Spirit and we are being remade more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Do you recall the story in John's Gospel of Nicodemus asking Jesus how we can be born again? Jesus responds that only those born of the Spirit will enter the kingdom of God. Now, there is much more we could talk about on that topic as well, but as we work our way through this letter in the weeks ahead, Peter will focus more on what that means for us and what that looks like. Peter then describes that our new birth is into a living hope. A couple of months ago, I was reading about an exchange between two people on our present-day political and social climate, a lively conversation, you can imagine. One of the men was a Wall Street trader, early 40s, bright, hardworking, obviously successful. As they chatted, their conversation turned toward life and philosophies of living. Confiding in his friend, he summed it up as follows. You've got to get rich if you're going to have any hope of protecting yourself and your family. To which the other man asked the obvious question, Protect against what? The man waved his hand dismissively and replied, Come on, you know, protect against the fact that the system doesn't care one whit about your well-being. Now, whatever he means by the system, that may or may not be accurate. Regardless, his hope was clearly grounded in this world. And it leads me to ask the question, in what exactly are we resting our hope? This idea was driven home to me about 10 years ago. I was having dinner with a friend, and we were having a general discussion on matters of faith. In attempting to tie off our discussion, I said something to the effect of, that's why we have hope. Well, he smiled, And then he looked at me with this intense sense of urgency and responded, It is more than hope, Gary. We have an absolute assurance in Christ. I titled this series Beyond Hope. There's a dual meaning in this expression, beyond hope. Without Christ, we are, quite literally, beyond hope. But on the other hand, through Christ... We have this assurance, 
It's more than a hope. It's an assurance in eternal life with Christ. That absolute assurance that we have in Christ, if it does not fill your heart and mind daily, you are missing a source of strength that will never be exhausted, one that will carry us through our darkest hours. It is not a sense of optimism. It's so much more. It's a conviction of triumph over the world through Christ. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Soviet writer in prison for his critique of Soviet government, wrote in his book, Gulag Archipelago, about prisoners who were able to sustain themselves through the most horrendous conditions, suffering in the Soviet prison camps. He noted that it was those who held firmly to a hope founded on faith that managed to endure beyond what he could even imagine. The truce Peter proclaims in the beginning to these suffering Christians and the resulting hope that offers provides an anchor for us, too, when battered by the storms of life. Not only do they have this living hope, but Peter presses the point further as he continues with the third truth by assuring them that this new birth is into an inheritance. Let's pick it up at verse 4. We have a new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. When we think of an inheritance, we think first off of receiving that inheritance as a result of a parent or a relative passing. More than that, we think of it as being divided out. It is divvied up, as it were. Not so with God's riches. Our inheritance is all the riches and majesty and wonder and treasures of heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, or as Peter says, where it can never perish, spoil, or fade. But notice what else he says about this inheritance. It is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power. Now that word shielded, the ESV I think is a better translation as guarded. It's a, it's a military word used to describe something like a garrison guarding a post or a sentinel guarding a city gate. His point is we are kept or guarded simultaneously in the world while our inheritance is kept in heaven. Now, one may object. What good is our salvation laid up in heaven when we are tossed about on turbulent seas in this world? This is exactly why Peter shows us that while we suffer dangers and trials of this world, we are kept, we are guarded through faith, and yet not by our own strength, but by the power of God to aid us, to carry us in this life. I know that this is a lot of ground we've covered, but unless we understand the fundamental truths of the faith, the rest of what Peter then goes on to discuss would have been of no value. All of that is prelude to Peter's real goal of the letter, why that matters. He starts out in verse 6 and says, In this you greatly rejoice. What is this? Well, he's referring back to all the core truths Peter just laid out. All of it is so he can now get to the aim of the letter, which is captured in verse 11, when Peter refers to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Suffering and glory 
are not just part of the Christian faith. They are a core of the faith. We serve a Lord who, through suffering, was glorified. A suffering God who willingly went to the cross, suffering the weight of all eternity on himself, that we may share in his glory. Paul describes it like this in Romans 8.17. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Again, grief and joy, suffering and glory. The Christian faith holds these paradoxical conditions in tension at the same time as God sustains us. Peter now gets to his point. Continuing from verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer great grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you notice he says you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials? Christian faith, Christian life, does not mean our troubles are over, that we don't suffer or face heart-wrenching grief. That word grief here alludes to being deeply troubled or severe internal turmoil. I want to talk briefly here about suffering. As I said, how we view the world and life directly impacts how we view suffering and sets our course for how we deal with it. For example, there are Eastern religions which claim suffering is just an illusion, that it should be ignored. Or take as an example our secular society. For it, if happiness is our life's aim or its close cousin, hedonism, where life's ultimate goals are satisfying our desire for pleasure, Suffering is to be avoided at all costs. Then there are those who would respond to suffering as the Stoics would, stiff upper lip, buck up and just silently endure it. You might look to Winston Churchill in the period of World War II and the bombing of London as a perfect example of that. Many Christians will approach suffering in a similar way, or alternately, Some Christians believe expressing sorrow and grief is somehow a reflection of a lack of faith. Or worse, some Christians looking upon others in grief and sorrow conclude wrongly that, hmm, they must not be born again. They've forgotten their victory. Look, Scripture is full of men and women pouring out their hearts to God in grief and suffering and loss. We are told that Jesus at the death of Lazarus and seeing all the people grieving was deeply troubled and wept. He grieved. And certainly in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see him pouring out his heart to God in anguish. Listen to how scripture describes Job after he lost everything, his family, his possessions, his livelihood, everything. It says, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Now, that is a very visible and dramatic expression of grief. But then it goes on to say this. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. It is no sin to grieve loss or suffering, and is certainly not a sign of lack of faith. 
Actually, I would argue it is the opposite. Trusting in our Father, going to Him with an open heart in the midst of life's hardships is the very essence of walking in faith. Now, here we get into the hardest part of this truth. Did you catch it? Peter says, had to. Had to suffer grief. Had to? Lord, why? Is there anyone who would not ask that question? You survey people's objection to the Christian faith, and right there you'll find one of the number one arguments against the faith. How can an all-loving and all-powerful God permit such suffering? There are many reasons for suffering, to be sure. If we treat people poorly, we likely are going to suffer in our relationships. Our addictions lead to suffering to us and those around us. We intuitively understand these. But many, maybe most, are seemingly unjust. Senseless acts of others, natural disasters, disease, the list goes on and on. Yet, Peter says this, and again, I want to remind us of Proverbs 25:20 regarding singing songs to a heavy heart. Take a look at verse 7. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There it is. And it's a hard truth, I know. We live in a broken world, and suffering is part of it. But our faith of greater worth than gold is refined and purified through suffering. It's part of that sanctification where Peter began. We could talk at length on this subject, but let me just make one point on it. Suffering can and will refine us in many ways, but the one thing it most often forces us to do is to confront ourselves. Our response to suffering, no matter the cause, just or unjust, tells us a great deal about what we believe and who we are, or should I say whose we are. The Christian faith sees suffering as the path to glory, not just our own, but the glorifying of Jesus Christ our Savior. Okay, I, I know that's a hard message. So let me close with some brief thoughts on how we might respond. First, remember in what and whom you believe. Theology matters. Trust in the truth of God's promises. Take time to write those promises down. Memorize them. But I also need to add Faith is more than theology, but it's never less than that. Second, it's more than okay. It's good to grieve. Go to God. Pour out your heart. He longs that you draw near to him. James 4.8 tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Listen and be encouraged how Paul describes our condition from 2 Corinthians. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We serve one who has suffered everything. Go to him. Third, 
How do we do that? Prayer. I know prayer can be hard. I struggle with it constantly. But even in our darkest moments, when God seems so distant or even completely absent, pray anyway. Let me share this quote from John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. It's taken from a letter that he wrote to a woman who's grieving deeply. This is what he said. Above all, keep close to the throne of grace. He's referring to going to God in prayer. Keep close to the throne of grace. If we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near him, we may be sure we will get none by keeping away from him. And even when we don't have the words, remember Paul's encouragement from Romans 8. Spirit himself intercedes for us. Finally, we need to look again at reordering our loves. Let me ask you this. Who among us would not go to hell and back for the ones we love? Christ did exactly that for us out of love. How much more would we for the Lord who first loved us and whom we love? I mentioned in the beginning the quote from Wiesinger and the author as a rock-like person. Well, let me remind you of who Peter was. You recall that Peter rebuked Jesus, saying no regarding his suffering when that was all about to play out. You'll remember Peter assured Jesus that he would never deny him, and then he denied him three times before his crucifixion. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus caught him sleeping three times while Jesus prayed. How about when he became afraid, walking to Jesus, losing his faith and sinking in the water? Thirty years later, here's a man standing firmly on the rock of his faith. We should be encouraged by that. Such is the power of the Holy Spirit that was at work in Peter, in those early Christians, and is now at work in you and me for our salvation and the glory of Jesus Christ especially in times of suffering. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard teaching. I pray as we all are battered by the storms of life, suffering grief and trials of all kinds, that you will anchor us to the truth of your word and the cross. And that through your spirit we may be as Isaiah says, lift it up by your righteous right hand. Strengthen our faith, please, to trust you and all that to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.